I grew up in church, which is to say I grew up with prayer. Public prayer was central to every church meeting I attended. I later became a pastor and discovered that pastors are expected to be professional prayers. Church prayers are often what people think of when they hear the word prayer. They think they have to pray like the pastor on a Sunday morning. Unfortunately, many church prayers devolve into show prayers, and pastors can even develop a prayer voice using spiritual language, a holy voice. Jesus addressed show prayers in Matthew 6. How should we pray? What is prayer according to Jesus? What we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is really the disciples' prayer, because Jesus is explaining how to pray to his disciples. And he says, Don't pray like the religious experts. Don't pray like the professional prayers. You don't need to use holy words punctuated by sanctified phrases. Just talk to God. If there was one thing that the Jewish people in the first century knew all about, it was prayer. Their culture was steeped in and devoted to prayer. Three times every day, all men, women, children, and servants were required to stop what they were doing and say their prayers. Three times. Prayers were recited in the morning, at 3 p.m. when the afternoon sacrifice was offered, and again at sunset. If a man was working up in a tree or on top of a course of stones, he must come down from that place to say his prayers. A bridegroom was exempted from his prayers only on the first night of his marriage. Those whose dead were not yet buried were also exempt from the regulations regarding prayer. All of these instructions and much more were recorded in the Mishnah, which is the collection of rabbinic writings governing Jewish life. The prayer to be recited was not just any prayer. The prayer uttered at these times was known as the Tefillah, or the prayer, the grand benediction. The Tefillah consisted actually of 18 prayers, which were memorized and then recited. After the person recited the prescribed prayer, the person would add his or her specific personal prayers and requests. In the morning, the faithful Jew was required to recite two prayers before the Shema and one prayer after so that one prayer was a short prayer and the other a long prayer. In the evening, he must say two prayers before and two prayers after reciting the Shema. There were also prayers for figs, for grapes, or pomegranates. The faithful Jew was to stop and pray if he saw a shooting star at night, lightning flash across the sky, or a storm approaching. He was to stop and pray if he built a house or bought new items for that house. When he entered a town, he was to pray twice. Some rabbis said 
four times. And when he left that town, he was to pray once. All of this is what Jesus was reacting to as he preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. The religious leaders of Judaism had created a culture of prayer, but the prayer was designed to say more to other people than it said to God. Prayer was a sign of personal piety before others, not true, honest communication with God. Prayer had become horizontal, not vertical in its implementation. Jesus tries to correct this abuse of prayer in Matthew 6, 5, and 6. Jesus teaches us that prayer is relational communication, not a religious exercise. Jesus teaches us to talk to God for people, not through God to people. Jesus says, Stop using prayer to send a message to the people around you. Prayer is not political. How often has the preacher's prayer sounded like he was preaching a sermon, or exhibiting his spirituality, or trying to influence other people? So Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, about the subtle pressure of pride in prayer. The subtle pressure of pride in prayer. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Do we pray to impress people? Public prayers are often phrased not so much to talk with God, but to impress others with our spirituality. The pride of public prayer is an occupational hazard of the pastoral ministry. We pastors are regularly asked to pray in public, and no one wants to pray with bad grammar or weak theology, so we phrase our prayers carefully. Choosing our words to reflect well on us is a small step from composing our prayers to speak clearly to God. Prayer language can be used to reinforce a sermon or influence other Christians much like a husband who is talking to his children but sending a message to his wife who is listening, we can be talking to God but sending a message to those who are listening. My friends, pride is the greatest hindrance to real prayer. Pride. I find it instructive that Jesus does not start his teaching about prayer with an attempt to get people excited about prayer, or to motivate people to pray more. He begins his teaching on prayer by warning us. He is warning us about hypocrisy in prayer, which would tend to put a damper on our enthusiasm for prayer. To start instruction on prayer with correction about prayer is like throwing a wet blanket on a flickering fire. It would discourage listeners from praying. 
I remember one of my early Bible college classes where the professor called on a student to open the class in prayer that first day with about 70 of us freshmen listening. When the student finished his stumbling prayer, the professor proceeded to critique his prayer in front of all of us. We were all glad we didn't get called on to pray, and we prayed fervently from that day onward that we wouldn't get called on to pray in future classes. Perhaps his correction motivated us to pray honestly in private, but it certainly didn't excite us about praying in public. Well, Jesus is more interested in a few people engaging in real prayer than crowds of people praying show prayers. Jesus knows that pride shackles our spirits in prayer. A woman said to a guest at dinner, We say grace at dinner each day to remind us around here that there is something bigger than our egos. Well, sadly, prayer can be used as a form of ego gratification. So, my friends, we must guard against praying for show. Jesus said that the Pharisees love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Standing was the normal posture of prayer in the Jewish synagogues. They would stand to pray facing the direction where the Holy of Holies was located in the Temple of Jerusalem. Standing, of course, is not the only posture for prayer. We find people in the Bible kneeling to pray, standing, and falling on their faces to pray. The the question is, are we engaging in real prayer or show prayer? The physical posture for prayer is not nearly as important as the spiritual attitude in prayer. The story is told of a certain man who struggled to find the right posture for prayer. He tried kneeling but it was uncomfortable. He tried standing, but his legs got tired. He tried to pray while seated in a hard chair, but his back hurt, and it seemed disrespectful to God somehow. Finally, one day, he was walking through a field, and he fell headfirst into an open well, and did he ever pray? Jesus talks about people who pray in the synagogues or on the street corners. In the synagogue, the prayer leader would stand before the case containing the the Torah scrolls and lead the synagogue in prayer. Any male adult member was entitled to take his turn leading in prayer. The priesthood was divided into 24 courses of priests who would would each serve the temple in Jerusalem for a week at a time. Each course of priests also had its own group of laymen. Some of these laymen accompanied their course of priests to the temple during their week of service, but the others gathered in the synagogue to pray every day that week. Each afternoon, at the time of sacrifice, they would gather in their synagogue for prayer and so participate in the temple sacrifice from a distance. These men were known as the standing posts, 
or the pillars of their synagogues. The reference to praying on the street conjures up the image of the Pharisees stationing themselves on the street corners and praying in a loud voice so that they attracted everyone's attention. Jesus is not referring to such an obvious show of arrogance. The Pharisees were too scrupulous in their spirituality to be so obviously proud. Feigned humility achieved a better spiritual look. Jesus is referring to the afternoon time of prayer. At 3 p.m., a trumpet would blow, announcing the time of the afternoon sacrifice, which was also, of course, the time of prayer. The religious leaders, such as the Pharisees, or the standing posts, would conveniently contrive, supposedly unintentionally, to be at a major intersection in the town at the time of afternoon prayers, instead of being in their own private homes or even in the synagogue. The Greek word for street meant a wide street, not an alley or a side street. The Pharisees positioned themselves when the time came so they could stop and pray right then and there on a big, wide, open street. They would just happen to be on that conspicuous street corner at the time of prayer. Others could see their piety and say, what holy men these are to stop and pray wherever they might be. Well, we can do the same today. Humility is a virtue in our churches. Pride is condemned. We receive approval for humility and disapproval for pride. Prayer is the primary means of accomplishing feigned or fake humility, just like the Pharisees. Now, we don't have to shout out our prayers or call attention to our holiness in a showy way. Instead, we just make ourselves conspicuous at the time and place of prayer. At church meetings, we make ourselves available to be called on for prayer. I mean, it's better to be called on to pray than to offer to pray. Looks more humble. We make sure we become known as prayer warriors in our church, so we will be called on to pray. We call attention to our own prayer life. We might begin a testimony by saying, as I was praying about this in my morning devotions today. And when we pray, we make sure that our words demonstrate our piety in the practice of prayer. Jesus says, they have their reward. They got what they wanted, the respect of others for their feigned humility. And we desire that reward too. And show prayers have their human rewards. Public prayers, Jesus says, earn the wages of respect. The word translated to be seen by men means to shine. The word translated have was a business term for a receipt you received when you paid a bill. The word for reward literally meant wages, your paycheck. Jesus says that these men earn the wages they deserve. 
the wages of such prayers are real. We get to shine before men. This is our paycheck for prayer. We earn the respect of people around us through our public prayers. Now, we may say nothing at all that expresses any true prayer. In fact, Jesus goes on to warn against babbling in prayer. However, such prayers have their superficial reward. We get to shine before others at that moment. And some of us become highly skilled at shining brightly. Public prayers are often for show. Jesus is not saying that public prayers are wrong. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not so much contrasting as comparing. He is not saying one way is wrong and another is right. He is instead comparing the good with the best. He is raising the standard for our spiritual lives. Prayer is good, but how we pray may not be the best. The danger is that in public prayer, the subtle pressure of pride can shackle our spirits in prayer. Jesus is not saying we should never pray in public. Jesus is warning us about the dangers of praying in public. The problem of public prayer is that we begin, we can begin to talk through God to people all too easily. And every preacher knows this danger acutely. After all, we are supposed to be able to pray spiritual prayers. Prayer becomes our profession. Every Sunday we must do a pastoral prayer. We give invocations and benedictions. My friends, we pastors are the Levites and the standing posts, so prayer can degenerate quickly into a show we perform for others. Prayer must not become a performance skill we cultivate in public, but it should be the overflow of our prayer in private. There is an antidote to the pressure of pride in prayer. It is the public-private test of prayer. Look at verse 6, where we learn the simple power of privacy in prayer. The simple power of privacy in prayer. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Here is the public-private test of prayer. There are two questions we should ask ourselves. One, do we pray more in public than in private? Do we pray more in public than in private? And two, do we pray differently in public than we do in private? The pressure of pride increases in direct proportion to the discontinuity between our private and our public prayers. If we change the language of prayers in public, we will succumb to pride. If we change our vocal intonations in public, we will succumb to pride. Many Christians develop a God voice 
and God language that they use in public prayer. We would never talk like that in private, so why should we talk like that in public? If we pray more in public than in private, we will succumb to pride. We can sound so holy in public, but rarely ever pray in private. Others may never know, because they cannot see the heart, but God knows, because God sees. The bottom line is, do we pray to impress people or to enjoy God? And Jesus teaches us two lessons about the power of privacy in this verse. Privacy frees our spirits in prayer. Privacy frees our spirits in prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. He knows that in the privacy of our hearts, we can be free to express ourselves to him honestly and openly, no show. Most Jewish homes of that era only had one main room where everyone lived, so there was very little privacy in the home. Many, however, would have a small room, more like a storeroom, where they would keep their possessions. We might call it a closet. The wealthy would have a big closet, but the poor might have a tiny space. Here, right here in the closet, with all your most treasured possessions to remind you, close the door and talk with God. He is a treasure beyond compare. We go into our closet and talk to God who is in secret. The word didn't mean that God was a secret to be kept from others. The word meant hidden or private. The Father is found in private, for he is not visible to this world. We can go into our prayer closet and talk to our God, who is unseen in this world, but seen through the eyes of prayer. Prayer opens our eyes to the wonders of the God who exists incognito much of the time in our lives. Unlike public prayers, which earn their own wages of human respect, Jesus teaches us the second lesson about the power of privacy. Privacy enjoys the rewards of relationship. Privacy enjoys the rewards of relationship. Jesus says, your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He will reward you. Whereas back in verse 5, Jesus said that they would have their wages, their rewards. Here in verse 6, the word is a different Greek word. The word translated reward means to return or give back something. What does our Father give back to us? He gives back what we give to Him, our love. Private prayer is a conversation between two lovers, like the young lady who takes the phone to a private room to talk with her fiancé so no one else can hear. Private prayer involves the whispers of love between God and us. He returns 
the love we affirm to him in private prayer. One pastor writes, Meaningful prayer looks like the communion between two people caught up in a love affair. Lovers seek privacy. Lovers do not look for the busiest intersection of the city to share their intimate thoughts with each other. Lovers look for a private place to whisper their love. So it is in real prayer. Real prayer is the conversation of lovers. The reward of real prayer is a deeper and more intimate relationship with God. God himself is the reward of prayer. In the language of the Christian mystics, we need a sanctuary or a hermitage where we can be alone with God. That sanctuary may be a walk in the woods or sitting under a favored oak tree. It may be the sanctuary of our car by ourselves or even the living room after all have fallen asleep for the night or before they get up in the morning. The result of private prayer is powerful. We open our souls to God. We begin to really see God, and God begins to change us into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Think of your soul like the memory card in your digital camera. Prayer is like clicking the shutter of your DSLR to allow light into the digital image sensor which transfers the image to the memory card. As you focus on Christ, his image records on the memory card of your soul. Prayer is like time-lapse photography. Each second the shutter opens and closes, it exposes your soul to God. The longer or the more frequent the exposure in prayer, the more Christ imprints his image on your soul. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. To continue the camera metaphor, in a DSLR with a mirror, the mirror reflects the light to the sensor which records it on the memory card. We behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Our exposure to him in prayer transforms us into his image, and that, that, my friends, is what real prayer is all about. God is changing us as we talk to him. Real prayer is natural, like water bubbling up from a spring. When the prayers bubble up, they are expressed naturally in public in sometimes surprising but refreshing ways. I read a story about a retired missionary to Africa named Floyd Pearson, for whom prayer had become a habit of life. And in his seventies, conversation with God bubbled out of him so naturally that when he went to take his driver's test, he said to the examiner, I always pray before I drive, so will you pray with me right now? And he bowed his head and started to pray. I wonder what the examiner thought. But the missionary did pass his test. 
Dallas Willard writes, The open secret of many Bible-believing churches is that a vanishing small percentage of those talking about prayer are actually doing what they are talking about. Much of our church prayer life consists of what I call end-zone prayers. I mean, you've watched the athlete in the football game celebrate after a touchdown. Some increasingly celebrate with wild dances and other displays of self-glory, but some kneel in the end zone and point toward heaven as if praying. Now, I do not know the hearts of those people, but I suspect that many of those prayers are designed to say more to those watching than they are to say to God. They are show prayers, not real prayers. I have a great deal more respect for the athlete who celebrates with his teammates and then, later, in the quiet of his locker or the privacy of his car, he sincerely thanks God. In privacy, no one knows or sees him, and he cannot be motivated by 60,000 fans watching him. My friends, show prayers lack power. Real prayer is powerful. William Carey, the great missionary to India, is often called the father of modern missions because God raised up thousands of missionaries through his example. William Carey is well known to Christians, but most don't know about his paralyzed, bedridden sister who prayed regularly for him for 50 years. She was a major reason for his success. Every pastor knows that the church is only successful through prayer. But every pastor also knows that it must be real prayer and not show prayer. Many, many years ago now, early in my ministry, I asked 12 people to commit to pray for me every Sunday morning. I asked these 12 people to pray for my family, too, since, contrary to what many imagine, Sunday mornings in a pastor's house is not a time of quiet serenity or visible holiness. I would, in turn, promise to pray for them on Monday mornings as they began their work week. We called it the Order of the Closet. The Order of the Closet was private. It was just between them, God, and me. Nobody else knew but me who those twelve people were. But I know they were my faithful prayer warriors. God worked powerfully in our church during those years when the order of the closet was fully operational. Most of those prayer warriors, and I call them that truthfully, most of those prayer warriors are now along with the Lord. But I shall always treasure the memory of them as fellow members of the order of the closet. Will you join the order of the closet today and pray for your pastor and his family every Sunday morning? Will you do that?